All right, so I brought this up now. Soil the plant stomach. We talked about this a little bit the last hour. Um, I want to get into the soil food web, but before I get into that, I wanted to share with you, I think most of you know who William Albrecht is, and um, a gentleman that wrote a number of books. Uh, his name's Charles Walters. I'm quoting the book Eco Farming, page of, let me see, I've got it in here, page 213. Um, it's written by Charles Walters, and in that, he's quoting Albrecht. So I'm going to quote Walters quoting Albrecht. A lot of quoting here. Okay, so it says, on the, this is on the question of phosphorus. He was being asked the question, how do we, uh, how do we since phosphorus, the, plant, the, the, the species that, the particular species of phosphorus that the plants want is referred to as orthophosphate, which is a P2SO4. And the question was, how do we manage phosphorus? Uh, what, how do we measure for this? How do we concern ourselves with phosphorus? And this is the answer that, that was given. Uh, again, so he starts off by saying, we ran, this is Walter saying, we ran this up the flagpole with William A. Albrecht one day while a tape recorder was running. His answer exhibited the usual patience as he repeated what he had gone over a few dozen times before. Only this time he made the phosphorus connection. In the soil management, he said, we associate the inorganic, inorganic nutrients, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, iron, aluminum, zinc, copper, cobalt, manganese, and others with positive ionic characteristics with the soil's colloid humus clay fraction of the opposite negative electrical character. The essential nutrient elements, namely nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, boron, chlorine, iodine, molybdenum, etc., and others are empirically associated with the organic matter of the soil. So why not envision these anions, or negative elements, corrected with decay stages of organic matter when a wider carbon-nutrient ratio reserves as a source of energy by the carbon first to the fungi, then to the bacteria in the soil? Why not visualize the negative elements as serving simultaneously in plant nutrition as collated and large molecular complexes of uh, microbial origin? Shin Chen Chang made the, the point in, the 19, in 1931 that considerable phosphorus ranging from 0.1% to 0.5% reached the soil in organic materials. Release of this phosphorus depends on decomposition of organic compounds by microorganisms. It is for this reason that manures, green or barnyard, or compost refinements thereof should not be valued alone for their nitrogen. This statement was made in the early 40s, and it was just in the last 10 to 20 years that people are getting intelligent about uh, compost and the effects that it has on the buildup of phosphorus in the soil. But the more important thing that I want to stress out or, or bring out and talk about is the soil food web, which is essentially the breaking down, metabolizing, consuming of anything that was ever alive, whether it's a dead person, a dead animal, a dead plant, a dead worm, a dead bacteria, fungus, etc., etc. All of that composes part of the soil food web. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust is what the Bible says. We were all once, from the dirt we were made, everything, now to the dirt we shall return. When we're in that process of decay, those nutrients that were necessary to build up that organic life are slowly released through the metabolizing of soil organisms. Whether it's bacteria, whether it's fungus, whether it's earthworms, whether it's uh, protozoa or little rodents or arthropods or springtails or snakes or birds 
or the big mean lion or us, or human beings, whatever it is, it when we break down, when we, when we are decaying, when there is some level of decay, there's also, along with it, the releasing of nutrients. And so the question was then asked, and this is kind of a, this is why I say I prepared this as advanced level, is how do we then manage for phosphorus? How do we measure phosphorus? We really need to look at our organic matter because that's where phosphorus is hidden. I shared early the, earlier how phosphorus will combine with calcium to form bonds that are not broken by any type of plant exudate or even bacterial, There's, except for one species, of Bacillus uh, metallitis, I think is what it's called, that can actually break down phosphorus. And then otherwise it's fungally, it happens through fungus, and uh, some of its uh, exudates can break it down. And I have some images I'll show you in the uh, sixth hour of this presentation with respect to basalt and other minerals that were, that were taken recently at Oregon State University with a, a helium electron uh, microscope, and it shows exactly the kind of weathering that fungal hyphae puts on basalt and other, uh, and other uh, minerals that form in the soil. But for now, what I really want to share with you is that the bulk of that phosphorus is coming from your organic matter. So as you study soils, you keep hearing that word, OM, organic matter, organic matter. Folks, there's some chairs up front if you'd like to take a seat. Um, so we, we really need to, it seems like with soil science and with uh, improving soils that it all goes back to organic matter. And this is why so many people jumped on the compost bandwagon, including uh, some of the early uh, reformers of agriculture, if you want to call them that. Uh, even, uh, what were their names? Um, Rodell, uh, even Steiner hopped on that bandwagon. He added a lot of uh, hocus pocus to it with... Uh, with uh, some of his uh, spiritual applications that he wanted to make and his bullhorns and other funky stuff. Uh, but uh, the real thing, the real magic that was being done there was the fact that he was recycling nutrients. He was bringing in organic matter. None of the other uh, uh, occultism uh, really favored him at all. Um, let's see, who was the other one? I, for I forget the names, but anyhow, yes, those early pioneers of what eventually became the organic agricultural movement uh, we're responsible for bringing in that organic matter and understanding the importance of nutrient cycling. Phosphorus is very much necessary for any type of li living organism. It regulates the energy through ATP, uh, phosphosynthates, uh, photosynthates. Um, it is required, I showed you the image uh, in the previous hour of the uh, phospholipid bilayer, which is what forms the membrane of every single living cell. Doesn't matter what it is, human, plant, animal, whatever it is. It requires phosphorus to form those membranes, and if it's not available, you're not gonna have that phosphorus. So if you got a plant, you got some kind of phosphorus. You can never say, you can say a plant is phosphorus deficient, but you can never say a plant doesn't have any phosphorus. Because if it didn't have any phosphorus, it wouldn't be a plant. Plain and simple. So phosphorus is definitely there. For this hour, what I'd like to focus on is the soil food web. There's this image you guys have been staring at for a little while. Here's another image. We have our organic debris. You see how earthworms will, uh, another word for organic debris in the, science, in the soil science community is called detritus. That's a new word for you. You can write it down if you like. Detritus is plant anything that was once alive like leaves. If you go out and you get a whole bunch of leaves, you put that on the ground, it's referred to as detritus. Uh, that can be consumed by earthworms, it can be consumed by fungus, it can be consumed by uh, act uh, actinomycetes, uh, bacteria, protozoa, uh, sub uh, consequently as well as like a food chain, um, you know, protozoa will consume bacteria, and then beetles, mites, and springtails will consume fungus. 
Uh, ants will consume some of these smaller organisms. Earthworms uh, can be killed by, uh, this one actually doesn't have nematodes in it, I think. This picture doesn't have nematodes in it, but you've got flatworms, you've got robe beetles, you've got centipedes, mites, pseudo, uh, pseudoscorpions, ground beetles, all these creepy crawlies you see in the soil. They all have a certain purpose that God designed for them, and they're all part of essentially the food chain of the soil and breaking down organic matter and making it available to nutrients. Every single one of these organisms consumes something and excretes something, whether it's bacteria and fungus just excreting enzymes and acids, or if it's the, uh, the phrase of all these small phrases is a fancy word for manure uh, for all these insects. Here's another image of uh, one square meter of soil. On average, you'll find one vertebrate, which means a bird or a snake or something of that uh, nature. It has, on average, 100, uh, 100 snails and slugs, uh, about 3,000 potworms and earthworms, about 5,000 insects, myropods, spiders, diplurons, uh, about 10,000 rotifers and tardigrades, about 50,000 springtails, about 100,000 mites, about 5 million nematodes, about uh, Oh, what's that number? 10 billion protozoa and uh, 10, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, 10,000 trillion of bacteria and actinomycetes. That's in one square meter of forest floor. That's an awful lot of life. I mean, if you just stare at that and think about one square meter, that's about nine square feet roughly, maybe 10 square feet of, uh, of a forest floor has that much biological life put in there by our creator. That was not by design. I don't think you can study soil science and in any way, in any facet, come to the conclusion that the world just evolved. <laughs> I don't understand how they come to that conclusion. But when you see that that much life, and the thing is that if you remove even just any one of these layers, you really disrupt the soil. If you remove the bottom layer especially, without bacteria, if somehow you can manage to get in there, and these are some practices that they use now to go in and fumigate soils, uh, or they'll treat them with steam or other real strong chemicals, and they just want to kill everything. I forget the name of the product that just recently came out. And it's supposed to kill everything, and I mean everything in the soil. I forget the name of that product. I wish I could remember what it was. Uh, they're doing trials with it right now in Oregon. It's supposed to kill everything. Why? Because they don't know what else to use. Glyphosate's not working like it used to anymore, and a lot of these other things aren't working like they used to, so they come up with new, harder, harsher chemicals. So here's another image. We're going to get to soil microhabitats now. We're looking at the, uh, the drillosphere. This is the point, uh, usually the top uh, three feet or so of the soil, where you see your earthworms and uh, a few of the other critters that would drill through the soil. Then you have your porosphere. This is the actual micropores where moisture moves through. When the rain falls or when irrigation comes through, you have these pores that go through the soil. Uh, you have detritosphere. This is the actual, uh, uh, um, and uh, we'll call it the, the O horizon, but some of you guys don't know what that means, but that's the top layer of the surface of the soil with essentially uh, leaves and wood chips and any of that type of crud that you tend to see in the, uh, in the uh, forest floor. Uh, you have aggregate sphere, which is the actual soil aggregates. What forms these aggregates? You, you can look at soil, you pick it up, you dig it out of the ground, you can smell it. You guys ever smell compost, you know, that rich smell. What is that smell that you smell in compost? Those are the exudates of, of uh, actinomycetes that you're smelling. Um, and that's that good smell that, you, that, that we like, as opposed to the putrefying, nasty smell that makes you go, Ugh, and you want to close your trash can, or you want to walk away from a pile of dung or something. Uh, then you have the rhizosphere. This is where actual roots. You have the rhizosphere is the uh, environment immediately around uh, the soil roots. And the rhizoplane would be the actual right on top of the epidermal cells of a root and its root hairs. 
we're going to focus on the rhizosphere because we, we, I took you from the leaf all the way through the biology going all the way down to the root system. Now we're at the rhizosphere and we want to see what's going on here. Now we've got to keep in mind that this entire presentation is about how do we get healthy plants, sap, so that we can get healthy sap, right? And if we can get healthy sap, because the life of the flesh is in the blood, if we take that principle, we want to make healthy plants. And if we can make those healthy plants, then those natural remedies that so many of us are becoming accustomed to, that we enjoy, will be much more effective if they come from healthy plants and healthy tissues, which requires healthy sap. Where does that sap come from? It comes from the transpiration of the plant. Where does that come from? It comes from the soil solution. What is the soil solution? It is that moisture immediately around the rhizosphere. And what dictates what nutrients are going to be available to, uh, to the different plant species in that rhizosphere is something that becomes very critical. We've talked about, I think a lot of folks have talked already about chemistry. We balance that chemistry that gets those, um, that gets those um, nutrients balanced on your clay colloids and your humus colloids. But we also need the decay to be right. Now, in that rhizosphere, this is why I call it the plant stomach. The majority of the bacteria is found either in the rhizoplane or the rhizosphere, which means it's immediately adjacent to the roots. Why? One of the gentlemen here asked a question about organic matter decomposition reducing with uh, changes in chemistry. So if our pH is really high, most bacteria want a pH around 7.4, or, or I believe 7.4 to 7.0 uh, for roots uh, and, um, and bacteria. They want that pH there. Now, this is not bulk pH, okay? When you take your soil to a lab and you have it measured, that's bulk pH. They come back and they tell you the pH of your soil is 6.5 or 6 or 5 or whatever it is. That's bulk pH. We're talking about microenvironment pH of a root or a bacterial organism. That is the pH immediately around that organism, protecting that organism and, and, and balancing uh, uh, chemical uh, processes inside those cells. That's the pH that needs to be 7 to 7.4. And that pH is manipulated by exudates. That means things that organisms push out of their body to manipulate that pH just in that little environment. And so plants will also push hydrogen ions out of their root cells to manipulate the pH in the rhizosphere and in the rhizoplane. So when plants do this, bacterial organisms will move there because they don't have to expel energy to produce that same pH, to manipulate that pH. So if you, can, if you can think of it like this, how much energy does it take for you to stand outside in the cold and shiver and shake and keep yourself warm versus just coming inside this room, right? If you had to think about how many calories your body would metabolize being outside in the cold versus just hanging out inside by the fire, it's, you wouldn't have to eat so much, but we, that doesn't keep us from eating a lot, but we don't have to, you know, it, it, we don't have to utilize that energy. It's the same for bacteria. They want to be where the environment is going to be most suitable for them. And if that environment is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to have a pH closer to what their desired pH is, then it doesn't have to metabolize as much uh, carbon. So when you fix, when you, well, let me, let me rephrase that. When you balance your soil chemistry, you will usually balance the pH. It'll fix itself, usually. There are some exceptions. There's a few soils out there that are real crazy, but for most soils, you'll correct that pH. When you correct that pH, 
microorganisms no longer have to metabolize as much organic matter, which means energy, to manipulate their environment so that they can survive. You guys got that? And if you're not metabolizing as much organic matter so that you can manipulate your environment so that you can be comfortable, then your organic matter will actually build up in your soil, which means that you will see increases in that percentage of organic matter, both biologically active, uh, intermediately active, and stable organic matter fractions. All three of those fractions of the organic matter will stabilize, and they will begin to build up if you can get that right. So you can see just off the top of your, uh, uh, without doing a whole lot of, or without having a whole lot of understanding of the sciences, what, why pH is given so much respect. Unfortunately, how to get it right is usually not given that much respect. They turn to lime, 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 lime some more, or other things, uh, but they don't get it right. Uh, oftentimes, they also uh, turn to ammonium-based fertilizers. Ammonia, which is NH4 positive, will quickly be metabolized, which is called through ammonification, to be formed into nitrate. When it does this, it releases two hydrogen ions for every single element of ammonia. So what does that do to your soil? It acidifies your soil. It doesn't matter the form of ammonia. Plants will only take two types of nitrogen. They only like it in two forms. Either they want it in ammonium or they want it in nitrate. Nitrate is NO, NO3 negative. Ammonia is NH4 positive. If the plant is taking up a lot of ammonia, it will convert that ammonia in its plant cells and it will dump that hydrogen out of its roots, further acidifying the soil. So the types of nitrogen that you're using and you're amending your soil with, if you decide that you want to use those synthetic forms, is going to affect your pH. But the problem is, is that most people don't understand how it's affecting their pH, and it's how some, a lot of times you'll lime, and then you'll come in and you'll put two, you'll double down. A lot of farmers will double down on nitrogen because they don't want to lose their crop. And then they can't seem to fix their pH. They blame it on the rain. They blame it on the soil. They blame it on whatever they want to blame it on. The pH will not be corrected. And then on top of that, they come in and they put in a whole bunch of synthetic phosphorus, uh, fertilizers like monoammonium phosphate. That phosphate will immediately react with that lime they just, just applied to form calcium phosphate, which is also known as uh, apatite. That, again, does what? Disrupt. It locks up your calcium, it locks up your phosphorus, and it lowers your pH. How? By, by chemistry processes. It's all in understanding the chemistry. You make your calcium, un I'm sorry, it won't lower the pH. It won't change the pH at all. It usually ups the pH, but your calcium availability when you go and you have your soil tested will not change. And you'll find that you don't have any calcium in your colloids. Why? Because it's tied up with your phosphorus. Because you're adding synthetic forms of phosphorus. This is where people get into serious trouble adding too much phosphorus. In one of the fields in Massachusetts it was, uh, that we've had uh, five college farms purchased, they, uh, the previous farmer was leased to somebody else, but um, he grew potatoes. And he grew nothing but potatoes every year, and he'd been doing it for many years. When I had that soil tested, the pH was 4.5 or 5 or something like that. It had 6,000 parts per million of phosphorus. It was insanely high. And you would lime that field, and it seemed like it did absolutely nothing to change the pH. And it's why sometimes folks say, hey, I lined my field and the pH just won't change. 
And, uh, you know, they don't understand why. And he said, look, I did all the Albrecht soil balancing, you know, math that you're supposed to do. I went in there and I figured out what my CEC was. I figured out, hey, I need this much lime to change it. Da, 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 da. They make their applications of lime. They come back to say, hey, my pH didn't work. This Albrecht nonsense doesn't work. I don't want to practice this. But what they're not understanding is where is that calcium going? You've got to understand where that calcium is going. And a lot of times it's tying up with, with other things that should have never been applied. And in a lot of farms, like this particular farm, uh, you'll find a lot of literature that says potatoes love phosphorus. So you better double or triple down on phosphorus. You do that for 10, 15 years straight, you're going to have a lot of phosphorus in that soil. What ends up happening is that that phosphorus will bond with not only calcium, but it'll bond with magnesium, it'll bond with arsenic, it'll bond with copper and zinc, and it will form a, a non, uh, it'll form a precipitates, which are solids that it cannot break down through standard metabolic processes. Once this happens, it eventually, it's called supersaturated. Your soil becomes supersaturated with phosphorus, and phosphorus, a nutrient that is not supposed to move more than a couple millimeters in a lifetime, in our lifetime even, it's not supposed to move through the soil profile at all. It's not mobile. But it becomes mobile when your soil is supersaturated with phosphorus. And what that does is it starts producing eutrophication. What is eutrophication? That's when you get a bunch of phosphorus in your rivers, your streams, and your water tables. And all of a sudden, you have these algae blooms that take off. So by the time you get to the point that you're causing eutrophication, you've already seriously messed up your soil. And this has happened all over the country, especially in the Midwest, especially in the upper Mississippi River Delta. A lot of this is happening out there. So this is where some of that stuff goes. Now, I'm going to take you, we're going to keep talking about uh, metabolic processes of organic matter. We're looking here at uh, our buscular mycorrhizae and ectomycorrhizae, also known as endo or exomycorrhizae. Endo, indoors, inside, ecto, exit, outside. All that means is you have two different types of myco mycorrhizae that form uh, uh, symbiotic relationships with your roots. Some of them are internal to the, to the root. They come inside the root, as you can see to uh, your left here, and they will actually form hostoriums inside of the plant cells. This is very similar to the way Phytophthora and Festins works and many other funguses that are actually pathogenic, that kill your crops. But this one is not pathogenic. This is symbiotic. What that means is that it uses pretty much a lot of the same tools, but it doesn't seek to kill the plant. What it wants to do is actually form a relationship and share things. Exomycorrhizae, you see to your right, will form a... a around the root system and protecting the root system mostly. What is interesting is the one to the right, ectomycorrhizae, dominates uh, forest floors, while the one to your left is usually in your grasslands, prairie lands, and other places. So you're more likely to find it in uh, our buscular mycorrhizae in your garden or your, or your uh, agricultural lands. And uh, if you've got an orchard, you really want to develop the ectomycorrhizae fungus, and you want to get those uh, species down. And the reason why is because a lot of research has happened even just in the last couple of years that has shown that mycorrhizae doesn't just reach out and expand your soil uh, rhizosphere. Now, the rhizosphere, like I was uh, sharing with you guys, is that area right around your root caps, right? And when, you put it, when a plant starts putting roots out, it, you're, it's really, it's so small. I don't remember if it was 0.01 or 0.001% of the overall volume in the soil. In other words, the surface area is really tiny. To maximize that surface area, you need things like fungus. 
Now, the, why do you want to maximize your surface area? Is because of, if you increase your surface area, you increase diffusion and you, incre you increase the rate at which nutrients will enter into the fungus or enter into the plant. In other words, you're increasing the amount of, of uh, area that your nutrients will be able to exchange, or I'm sorry, that your plant will be able to exchange nutrients with the soil. So that's where my, fungus, uh, mycorrhizae fungus really gets, po uh, uh, gets popular and uh, has earned a lot of its respect. Uh, however, there's more than just that. A lot of research has found with perennials in forests, uh, as well as in uh, orchards. I think they tried it in uh, hazelnut orchards and um, peach and pear orchards in Washington. And what they have figured out is that when these fungal networks form in the soil, they become like communication networks. And when you look at an orchard, uh, they all, they're, essentially they all begin to interconnect because fungal organisms are huge. They are huge and they form hyphae and they just go everywhere. And a hyphae is like a root system, like what you see sticking out on both sides. These are hyphae. I think it says that, but this is a low quality picture. You probably can't make that out. Uh, they start to form these hyphae that go everywhere and they begin getting into all these different roots and they start going down into uh, uh, the parent material in, the, in, in that soil and they start weathering that material, accessing nutrients that the plant could never access. Uh, but they also, which is very, very crazy, they started looking to see, hey, if we, let's just say we take this, these two or three plants over here in this orchard and we put excessive amounts of nutrients there and we don't put any at the far other extreme of the orchard, what would happen? And they started taking tissue analysis and making these, uh, um, making these uh, uh, additions and, and deductions in their amendments and they put isotopic nitrogen in there to figure out what it was doing. And what they discovered is that that nitrogen that was poured almost uh, 300 yards away was found way out in a different orchard when they tested the, the, the leaf tissue. And what they discovered is, is that the fungus was actually sending nutrients to other plants and, back, and, and vice versa so that they were sharing excesses and deficiencies to balance each other out. This is crazy. <laughs> this, was, this is relatively new. I mean, absolutely, absolutely just baffled the whole scientific community. They never thought that, that you know, they, they understood symbiotic. They understood, hey, you know what, I'll give you a buck and you give me, you know, a burger or something. But they never understood, hey, look, I have all this excess, share it with, you know, your distant family somewhere. Now, they never thought that it would do something like that. I mean, this type of giving, you, you don't find outside of the scriptures. This type of caring you don't find outside of the scriptures. But then they took it another step. They took it another step further and they said, hey, look. Now, can, can they, this time they did these tests in a forest and they were looking at Douglas fir, uh, a type of a conifer tree that, that, gr that is grown particularly for lumber in the Pacific Northwest. And they wanted to know if, uh, if mycorrhizae and the, and the host plant would be able to actually recognize its own saplings. In other words, it drops its, uh, its, uh, its uh, acorns down and it drops its seeds down around that forest floor and you know, some of them will take off. Now if you look at a forest, you notice you have these huge tall trees. If you spend any time in the forest, in the no Pacific Northwest there's tons of forest. And if you go and you walk in the forest, you see these trees, some of them almost 200 feet up in the sky and you say, the sun never gets down here. How do these trees, so small, get the nutrients, especially the photosynthates they need, to eventually make it 200 feet up, up into the air. And what they discovered is that when those saplings take off, that mycorrhizae will actually form uh, associations with the roots of those saplings and start to feed its own offspring, its own protege. Isn't that crazy? 
I mean, they can actually recognize the genetics of other species in that forest. And when they went and they took same Douglas fir, but from a whole other part, I think they brought it from Canada or somewhere else. So the genetics were essentially, it's still a Douglas fir, but it's a different, you know, it's a far distant cousin. And they brought it in. It favored its offspring over the one that had been brought in from a, a different forest, even though they were the same species. That was crazy. That was another thing they never thought that would happen. So then they, they go back, going back to orchards now, I, the reason why I bring this up is because it is very, very important that with orchards and any of your perennial crop that you really try to get those fungal, uh, uh, fungal communities developed in your orchard. Why? Because it will balance. Because here's another one. I, I want to tell you, I share another one with you, that another trial they did. They actually inoculated, and I don't remember if it was f fire blight or if it was can't remember which type of blight they, they, they uh, inoculated the plants with. But they started, or maybe it was pest. Man, my memory is, I can't remember if it was a fungal pathogen or if it was an insect. And I want to say it was an insect. And I, I'm thinking that it was actually uh, aphids that they put on one plant. Now, plants have the ability, when they sense something, and I'll talk a little bit about it a little bit later, but when they sense that there are certain attacks coming in, so in other words, their leaves, as soon as, a, as an organism gets onto a leaf and it begins to actually attack the cells, the cells have within them the capacity to sense certain uh, phytoalexins and things that are actually released into that plant cell by the pathogen or the pest. And it can signal to the rest of the plant, hey, it's time to build up our, what is referred to as a system of defenses, plant system of defenses. And it's essentially, it's the immune system of a plant. And it starts building this immune system, so now it starts to actually release things to fight that pathogen or that pest. But what they never thought would have happened is that if they did it with one tree in the orchard, that every single tree in the orchard would also activate its uh, systemic system of defenses. And this is only made possible through mycorrhizae. So it was very interesting that with pests and pathogens that it would actually communicate with other plants and say, hey, uh, I'm being attacked by aphids, develop your, your you know, start, start you know, expressing a certain part of the genome to build, to, that would actually give it resistance to that pathogen, some type of resistance to that pathogen. It's really interesting, but certain genes are not expressed unless they're called for. And that's the science. It's the same with us. Certain genes do not, are not expressed unless they're called for. But you've got to have the nutrients to give that. So this is, again, more uh, talk about mycorrhizae. So here we're going to go back to... Uh, Organic inputs. Now, aggregates, soil aggregates. We're going to go back into the soil. We're looking at soil aggregation. We're looking at soil clods. How does, how does this thing build up? How does, you know, soil is really just a whole bunch of weathered minerals, uh, whether it's clay, humus, or silt. Uh, it's just weathered minerals. How are all these things held together? What holds them together? What glues them together and makes that soil aggregate that we see in the soil? We say, hey, this is good soil versus, hey, this soil is dead. Good luck growing anything there. Uh, and what that is, is going to be your exudates, whether they're, whether it's secretions, mucilages, uh, mucilages, mucigel, and uh, lysates is what they're called. And these are all different carbon substances that, are, that come out of roots and out of microorganisms to actually glue and stick the soil together. And when you're constantly pounding a soil with a plow at all the wrong times of the year, and you're not plowing intelligently, I'll talk a little bit more about that. I, I don't believe in... You know, people always ask the question, to till or not to till? And they come up and ask me, should I till or should I not to till? You know, the farmers ponder, right? To till or not to till? That's the, at least the 21st century's farmer. And my answer to that is intelligent tillage. I'm going to steal this one from, 
Whitmore. <laughs> That's who it was. Uh, you know, God, God plowed Pharaoh's heart and he hardened it is what he said. I don't know how many times he said that. But essentially the principle is, uh, you know, there needs to be some plowing, some breaking of our heart. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't come in, what good is it? Right? It serves us no good. If we're going to plow the soil, you better be doing it for a good reason. You better have a purpose and you better be adding something to it. You don't just go and plow the soil because it's March. I'll talk a little bit more about microbial metabolism and we'll look at some of that in a second. This is a chart looking at um, water effects. We're going to look at the water effects of microbial metabolism. So what is that? I, I keep, I'm going to keep saying that word and I want to make sure that everybody under, in this room understands what microbial metabolism means. And that means organisms of any type, particularly bacteria, actinomycetes, and fungus, breaking down organic matter, metabolizing it. That means breaking down those carbon structures, uh, those phenolic compounds, breaking down the chitin, the lignin, and these other things, and releasing the nutrients like amine, uh, 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 the proteins, taking those proteins down, breaking that amine group off of it, taking that amine, which is the NH4, uh, NH2, and turning it into NH3, eventually converting it to NO3, which is nitrate, making it available to the plant. So how do you get a protein from a protein to a nitrate so that your plant can use it? It's a very intelligent, is a, is a very, uh, uh, intelligent process that to me, only by design. But it's strictly microbial. This picture shows the effects of water. When the soil is desiccated, which is A, which means that there's some moisture in there, you'll never get all the moisture out again unless it's very, very hot. You put it in an oven and you heat it to 500 degrees Celsius. Uh, if you don't do that, you're not going to get all the moisture out of the soil. So you have some moisture in there. In those small micropores in the soil aggregates, you will have bacteria and you will have other uh, soil or, uh, microorganisms inside of there. The moment you begin to add moisture to it, they can finally move around. Once they move around, it's, it's really the soil is like the Amazon. I'm sorry, not the Amazon, the uh, Sahara. You have lions and you have cheetahs and you have gazelles and you have all this other stuff. If you could just take that, that all those images you have in your head when you think of National Geographic or Discovery Channel and uh, lions and tigers and all these things running around and chasing you know, water buffaloes and things like that, that's exactly what the soil is. Except you have all these different organisms that are chasing bacteria and protozoas and worms and they're just running around killing each other and eating each other. And every time they kill somebody, there's a whole bunch of, uh, of nutrients released that, that are not needed. In other words, there's a lot of waste, but that waste is consumed by plants. That's why they say microorganisms eat first and then the plants. That's why they say feed your soil. That's what's going on inside the soil. When the soil is saturated, super saturated, that means you have 100% of its water potential. You, or, well, it won't be 100% water potential because the soil, that would mean a glass of water, but... Uh, 100% of the pore space is consumed with water or full of water. There's no air in that soil. You, microorganisms can now move through that soil. Through diffusion, nutrients will move, uh, organisms will move, and things will just get around that soil so fast, and it happens quick. Diffusion is, I mean, milliseconds. You're talking about an element of, of magnesium moving from you know, one particle to a different particle is something that happens very quickly. Uh, and it, but it happens with uh, saturations in soils. There has to be, God made by design, these, f these fluctuations of moisture and lack of moisture, and then you're saturated, and you're flooding, and then you're, and, then, and then you're drying, and then you're somewhere in between. Because when these processes are happening, there's differences in the way that microorganisms move around, how they metabolize, uh, how they metabolize, uh, how they metabolize uh, organic matter, and what organisms get to die, and what organisms get to live. 
So that makes a difference of when the lion catches the gazelle and when the lion doesn't catch the gazelle in the soil. It's very interesting how this moves. Then you also have changes in gas transport. We need oxygen going down there. You need, you need uh, carbon monoxide. You need all these different gases, especially nitrogen. 78% of the air is nitrogen. If we're going to fix my, uh, uh, rhizobium, that species of bacteria that fixes nitrogen so well, is going to actually fix nitrogen. You need gas exchange. You need that nitrogen gas to get into that soil in order for it to do it, right? Whatever gas was put in there when you tilled that soil is going to be long gone just a few days after you tilled it. So how does it continue to uh, fix nitrogen? There has to be gas exchanges. So this is why you, want, you don't want to have it fully saturated with water because there's hardly no gas exchange. If you look at the chart there in the middle in B, um, I don't have a pointer stick, but over here you see gas transport um, and then volumetric soil moisture. The more, mo the more moisture you have in the water, the, less, the lower your gas exchange. Uh, your solute transport will move, metabolic uh, costs come down. In other words, it requires more, uh, less energy with more moisture and more energy with less moisture for uh, microorganisms to move through the soil. Predation, you know, it's just like above ground predation. This is soil below ground predation uh, of uh, pr uh, predatory species attacking other species that are usually uh, herbivore or some other uh, heterotrophic uh, bacteria will actually increase as that water uh, uh, volumetric soil moisture increases. Uh, this is a slide that you could stare at for hours here and just think about and ponder the differences uh, in the behavior of microorganisms within the soil based strictly on water effects, nothing else. How much water is in that soil? Um, here's another one, fungal bacteria ratios based off of pH. What does pH have to do with our fungus uh, to bacteria ratios? And what we have found essentially is that the more acidic a soil is, the, uh, the more favorable a, uh, uh, the environment to fungal pathogens. So I talked about the genetic diversity of different species in a soil. And this is one of the things where pH, just like moisture, you know, at the bottom of a pond, uh, you're going to have all the same genetics that you have at the top of a hill. It's just that there's going to be a lot more uh, anaerobic bacteria at the bottom of a pond than there will be at the top of a hill. You understand the difference? Yeah. It's not that it's not there. It's there. It's all around us. It's just that there's a, it's the environment for the anaerobic bacteria is favorable at the bottom of a pond versus at the top of a hill. It doesn't mean those species aren't there or that they can't get there. It's a difference in moisture. Now we're looking at a difference of pH. Uh, Okay, you got both these charts here, as well as uh, carbon to nitrogen ratios is another, another uh, fungal to bacteria or another uh, characteristic that will dictate whether the soil is predominantly fungal or bacterial. And you see the chart here, we're showing if your nitrogen, if your carbon is very high, you're going to favor the fungal organisms. Why? Because fungal organisms are the only ones that can break down chitin. Bacteria can't break it down. If you look at these complex uh, carbon structures and the uh, alpha and beta bondages that they have with the phenolic compounds, it takes certain enzymes to break those down. Bacteria doesn't, is not advanced, or if you want to say advanced enough, they say it hasn't evolved enough, but whatever. I don't believe all that, but uh, anyway, uh, it's not as complex, and it doesn't make those exudates to actually break down those uh, bonds and break, that, uh, break down those uh, uh, high-carbon uh, plant tissues that you would find uh, in, say, a wood chip pile, so you're... Um, you know, your, what was that? I forget. Back to Eden thinking it's not going to work there. It's going to tie up so much of your nitrogen. It, it never fails. 
Here's uh, some modeling uh, for temperature effects. Temperature is another variable that really, really, really dictates when to plow. Why? Why? Again, I say intelligent tillage. When should you plow? When should you not plow? The temperature here is in Celsius. Uh, and the rate of uh, metabolism here is uh, it's on the y-axis here. So Arrhenius, Lloyd, and Taylor from way back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, came up with these two uh, theories of a rate of reaction. In other words, they're trying to uh, make a mathematical equation for the rate that microorganisms will metabolize organic matter. Uh, now, mind you, microorganisms don't do math. It's the first thing you've got to think about. They don't do math. These are just equations to try to give you an idea of the metabolic rates of these organisms with respect to temperature. So these were the first that came up, and we see that they're relatively the same, but you know, it won't go forever. At some point, it's going to reach a temperature which is really almost about 30 degrees Celsius, which is about 80 degrees, 85 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, where those equations are no longer valid. And we went to the uh, macromolecular rate theory. And this is actually much more valid. It looks, uh, looks kind of like a bell curve and uh, with its peak right around 90 degrees Celsius. And this is soil temperature, not environment. Okay? This is not ambient temperature. This is soil temperature that we're looking at here. So when the soil temperature is about 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which is uh, 35 degrees or so, may maybe 32, 33 degrees Celsius, that's when you will have your highest rate of microbial metabolism. That's when organic matter will break down the fastest. And that's the point where nutrients will be made uh, most readily available to plants. That's really the only important thing you need to get out of this slide. You don't need to understand the math and all the graphs, but what you do need to understand is at what temperature would the maximum amount of nutrients be available to, your, to, to, to the crop. And you need to line those up with the point, particularly nitrogen, uh, you need to line that up with the point as farmers. We need to line that up, if we could superimpose on this, the graph of when plants want the most nitrogen. And if you can line those up, you'll have the nitrogen you want at the time you need it for the crop you're growing. Fruiting. No, it's actually way before fruiting. <laughs> yes, <laughs> by fruiting, you're pretty much all done sucking up nitrogen. So here's a rhizosphere effect. Uh, now what we're looking at is the distance from the root surface and the uh, concentration of microorganisms. This side probably should have been, I think I jumped the gun when I started talking about this. But uh, this is a factor of 10, folks. This is 1 to the power of 10, what is changing here. So you're seeing some pretty, pretty big you know, fungus, streptomyces, and bacteria right there, uh, 0 um, millimeters away from the root, or at pretty much essentially at the root, which would put you at the rhizoplane, not the rhizosphere. But this is a, it says rhizosphere because as soon as you get away from that, you're in the rhizosphere. But you only need to get 10 millimeters away from the rhizosphere, and you see a huge sharp drop on each category, bacteria, streptomyces, and fungus. Their actual population, their density levels goes down the further you get away from the root, which again goes back to the theory that they want to be adjacent to the root, where they will consume less, uh, less energy to uh, manipulate their environment. This is other rhizosphere's characteristics. We're looking at water uptake um, based off of distance from the root. So, you know, you water the entire field, right, but how much of it is actually being used. Okay, so if we turn the sprinklers on, how much of that water is going to actually get used by the plants? Well, when you turn a sprinkler on, depending on, you know, if you're in the west, where humidity likes to hang around at 10 or 5 sometimes, and I mean, real low humidity, you lose as much as 50% of your water before that water droplet ever hits the ground. That's a lot of water to lose. 
And then once it gets to the ground, you're watering the entire field, but you've got, say, a row crop like corn with the 30-inch spacing. Um, what does that mean for water consumption? So this is where uh, Netafilm, 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 I'm sorry, the corporation that makes irrigation systems come up, came out with uh, uh, underground drip tape for corn. And they're, they've seen reductions compared to sprinkler irrigations. As I think they're consuming, if I remember right, it's either 10% or 25%, somewhere around there, a quarter to a tenth of the amount of water that was necessary for sprinkler irrigation. And that means a lot when you're out west. And I mean, everybody here is from all over the country, but when you're out west, water is important. So we start looking now, okay, what is the water? Remember we talked about transpiration, the sucking of the plant. It's, it's like a straw, sucking moisture from the soil through the plant all the way out the leaf, right? Bringing nutrients in with it. Now, where's the water disappearing and, and how far can that straw really suck? And this is what this graph shows. When you're one millimeter away from the soil, you pretty much can move almost all your water out there, out of there. And as you start to get to about two centimeters, you've lost most of that, uh, uh, that negative pressure. In other words, two centimeters, uh, two millimeters, I'm sorry, two millimeters away from the soil, uh, from the root hair, you're already losing, a, you, I mean, your water consumption drops significantly. It's rather interesting. And the further you get away from it, uh, uh, the greater the effect. But pretty much, you can, by looking at this graph, you can say within the first one to two millimeters of that root hair, that's where the majority of your water will be pulled from. So it helps you, it gives you an understanding of really where you need to be putting your water. Uh, these are compositions of uh, exudates. We're looking at uh, sugars, amino acids, organic acids, etc. There's actually, um, there's some people that have talked about fertilizing with sugar. <laughs> Sounds crazy, huh? But <laughs> fertilizing with sugar, <laughs> because uh, the uh, the compounds will uh, uh, I'm sorry, they'll cause essentially it's a substrate. So your bacteria, uh, your bacteria's that uh, consume that will actually uh, survive, and uh, mostly your bacillus, uh, your lactobacillus. You can actually fertilize with you know with dairy if you want to. You can go get the the old uh, milk that they don't sell at the dairies and actually dump it on your fields. And what that's going to do is going to drastically multiply your lactobacillus genus. Anything in the lactobacillus. It's going to just take off. And that, those are actually a lot of your anaerobic species that will break down, micro, uh, break down bacteria, I'm sorry, organic matter at some of your lower depths where, the, where your air is not going in. I think it's been most effective in some of the clay soils where it's real hard to get the uh, uh, gas exchange and getting oxygen down there for the, uh, some of this uh, bacteria down there. But anyhow, uh, these are some of the exudates that plant put out. So abscisic acid, um, uh, that's a really interesting one. You can, abscisic acid has been used to uh, uh, reduce blossom end rot. Gibberellic acid is actually, both of these are plant hormones, abscisic acid and uh, gibberellic acid. Uh, you also have catechol, which has a lot of things bonded to it, but these are all uh, carbon, you know, again, I said the science. This is all organic chemistry that you've got to understand here to understand what is being broken down and how these things break down and how they work in the soil. Uh, let's see, spatial extent of exudates. Okay, so we're looking at, again, two millimeters seems to be the rhizosphere. Two millimeters, by the time you hit two millimeters away from your root, your plant exudates have severely dropped off. So if, you're, if your plants are going to be putting anything into the soil to manipulate the, your, their environment, uh, really most of it is done within the first millimeter. And in this example, the exudates really don't get far. They really don't move. They stay pretty close to the roots. Um, here's another one. Can, I, I told you that uh, roots can actually manipulate the pH. So here we're looking at the, uh, 
what they did here. These are these three images are the same exact photo, the same exact thing using different you know technology. So we see here a container. I don't remember. I want to say it was clover, maybe alfalfa, but I don't remember. It was a legume here. You see all the root hairs through here. Now, um, how does the pH change? How does it vary? Remember, I told you when you take your soil to get sampled and tested, they give you bulk pH. What we're looking at here is the pH at the actual rhizosphere and the rhizal plane, and you can see the changes and uh, the enzymes that are released. And, it, and if you could put that image on top of the, the other image here, you notice that those changes uh, where the most activity is, is right there adjacent to the roots, relatively close. So when your soil really varies significantly and what's going on based off of the roots, uh, the exudates and, uh, and microorganisms that are working with it. I think this is going to be our last slide here. Rhizosphere dynamics. We're looking again at uh, the fungal hyphae. So the... The rhizosphere is where you want your fungus to actually uh, make its physical connection with the plant. But those hyphae will take off and go all over the place and collect nutrients that it'll ultimately bring to the, to the roots. And uh, this one here we're looking at uh, an amoeba and how its you know, microorganism will stay adjacent to the plant. Uh, organic matter will break down. So this is just these pictures of organic matter is just... You know, it, organic matter comes in so many shapes, sizes, and colors that it, they just use generic uh, images to represent it. Uh, but this is, is just organic matter breaking down uh, by microorganisms and releasing some of these nutrients. But you see the same thing down here with fungal hyphae will bring a lot of these nutrients into the roots as well. Uh, I believe that that is going to be it. Yes, we are. Okay. So this is uh, going to conclude this particular talk here. I think that I covered quite a bit of things here. I know some of this stuff is pretty heavy. I, <laughs> I'm trying to run through it and use basic terms, but uh, uh, it re I, it, I really uh, got to understand some of these things if you're really going to be profitable at what you're doing. Uh, you don't have to understand all of it, I don't believe, uh, but you got to understand some of it, especially with water management and uh, what roles you can expect microorganisms to play, and how you know, pH affects the soil. Questions? Boy, we had a lot. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I think it was a lady back here with the glasses. Okay. Um, you mentioned that, there is, that the pH will influence which microbes are favored, if it's fungal or bacterial, and I somehow didn't get... Okay. If a soil is predominantly acidic, it will be mostly... And I, and, I, and I speak bulk soil pH, okay? If the bulk soil pH is predominantly acidic, it will favor fungal organisms. Um, when you start, if it's mostly alkalinic, there, there'll, be hard, there'll still be some fungus, but not much. It's mostly bacterial and ectomycetes. Okay, okay, the question is where does mycorrhizae fit in? Mycorrhizae fits in in that it, makes, uh, it connects with roots and it goes everywhere. Fung mycorrhizae is a type of fungus. It comes in globular mycetes, actomycetes, basidiomycetes, a lot of different categories of fungus that are out there. But mycorrhizae will, and many other fungus will, will form symbiotic relationships with other, uh, other plants and other organisms like lichens and things like that. And they'll spread out and they'll go through, they'll go down into the uh, bedrock. Well, depending on how deep your soil is and what's there, they'll go into the rocks, they'll go into with other plants. They just, it's a huge organism that is completely underground 
and it really connects with almost everything down there. So where it fits in is a very complex uh, question to ask. I just meant which pH favors it. Oh, uh, acidic. Well, that depends on species, actually. I'm sorry. That one depends on uh, what species of mycorrhiza you're looking at and uh, what categories it falls under, because there's a lot of different types of mycorrhizae. They're not all the same. In saturation, is important to, for gas exchange and nutrient exchange? Yeah. Uh, okay, so a lot of the greenhouses that they use in the Netherlands and in other places will use soil moisture. Uh, these are really advanced, you know, real high-end, fancy. They got a lot of equipment. It's not something you'll ever use. But what they try to do is they try to manipulate. They, they based off of uh, soil tension, and they're constantly changing things uh, because what it does, like I say, it, it favors different different environments uh, based off of what they're trying to accomplish. What you, if you're in a more simple, which is what most everybody in here is going to have, is just a simple greenhouse. Um, you mostly you're you have some. Most of the time, we we challenge as growers, as farmers, we we have a challenge of keeping the soil moist. Um, not keeping it dry, you know. Well, it depends on where you, well, uh, I mean, even in Virginia with plenty of rain, we struggled, and even in, over in Massachusetts, we struggle sometimes to keep the ground wet because it's a greenhouse and it never sees rain. Uh, there's some losses to never seeing rain. Rain is acidic. Um, that's where a lot of the hydrogen ions came to begin with to wash that soil out and uh, remove those nutrients and get it acidic. But uh, when you're irrigating, you, you really need to be keeping your moisture at a desired level, and, and it, I would recommend using some type of simple moisture probe to have in these houses and basically you're watering off of that as opposed to just saying, well, it's 9 o'clock and it's Tuesday, let's water, and you really don't know if you're getting enough water down to your crop. So water management is a complex question that based off of soils, environments, and what you're growing in. Uh, I don't have a basic easy, easy answer for that. Um, I don't, well, I, from what I understand and how I understand the science, mycorrhizae has the capacity to move a lot of things more than just simple uh, cations or nutrients. Uh, it can move different plant hormones around. And uh, so I would definitely, my answer to that question would be a definite yes. So what was your point on soil temperatures? Yes. Okay. The question here is if the soil is zero degrees Celsius, that means the soil is maybe just barely thought out if you're going to go out there and plow it. So if you were to go out and plow a soil, the argument is with plowing is, is that you're destroying micro, you're destroying environments, you, you reduce your organic matter uh, because you, uh, the microorganisms, well, because you in introduce a lot of oxygen. And the, the uh, aerobic bacteria will begin to break down and accelerate the metabolic process of that organic matter, releasing a lot of nutrients, which uh, go, which adds to leaching and getting, you know, getting nitrates, particularly in your water tables and many other unfavorable processes. So if you're going to till intelligently, you really want to till when the soil is, is, is not as warm, because what's going to happen is any oxygen or any other things you introduce would have been slowed down. Uh, in other words, you won't have that acceleration in uh, microbial metabolism that you see when you till a soil in, a, uh, in a warmer temperatures um, from, say, 25 degrees uh, Celsius all the way up to maybe 40 degrees uh, Celsius uh, is when you would see the highest rate of microbial metabolism. So I would encourage one of the things that I, I say is that you should, if you're going to till for the purpose especially of adding nutrients, um, which if I was talking about the cation balancing, which I'm not, but essentially if I was going to do that, that was my objective. My soil is a mess. I want to get it right. I want to get it right, right, right away. Um, I use rotary spading, deep tillage 
in the spring when the soil is still very relatively cold, its metabolic processes are low, uh, it'll semi-compact uh, again, uh, but during that time, I know that I have those nutrients, I know they're in the soil, and I know they're mixed in thoroughly so that I can expect those changes that I want to see in the colloids um, by adding, making those uh, additional amendments. So Next. Oh, um, well, you're not ever really going to be out tilling at 60 degrees Celsius, but it would be pretty much from just, just barely thought out, like probably what the soil is outside right now here in Texas, uh, all the way up to about 20 degrees Celsius. Uh, uh, okay, okay. It's about 70, 65, 70 soil temperature. Again, guys, this is soil temperature, not the weatherman's temperature. This is soil temperature that's important. Okay. 68? Yeah, about 68. That's right. Yes. Because in relationship to, in the spirit of posse, it says till often, till deep. Yeah. And so some people I do see, they are overworking their soil. Yeah, but that statement was made to people that don't want to till at all. People that you know, barely scratch the surface. She, as she says right there, read the context. They barely scratch the surface. Um, essentially, they're, they're, the whole, the whole, that, read that whole thing all over again and get the context. She's talking to lazy farmers that don't want to go out and do the work that's necessary to get the soil right. So it wasn't about, you know, some people are tilling too much, some people aren't tilling at all. And some people just want to throw seed in the ground and hope that they get a crop and then cry when it does, it's not there. And she lived in a time where, you know, a large part of the population was, was, uh, lived some type of a, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, it had something to do with agriculture. So a lot of people were living a more agrarian lifestyle at that time. So a lot of folks were going hungry just because they weren't, you know, because of work ethic. It had more to do with work ethic. All right, I guess we're out of time. It's time for our 15-minute break here. Uh, we'll get back together. Oh, what does it say here? At 1045 for our last, our third session, I'm sorry. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.